In the midst of everything that is happening, God is not only on the throne, he is involved intimately in your life. And we are reminded by the events that are happening day to day that this world for now is not our home. Yeah, we are not to get comfortable. We are not to get so used to our air conditioning, to our dual overhead um, cam uh, vehicles, to our fuel injection, to our heaters, to our salaries, to think that it will continue being this way. No, no, this world is not our home. And the enemy is real. He's playing for keeps. But we have a message for God's people today, and that message is it's too late for Mr. Satan. Yeah, yeah, it's too late. You can throw whatever you want to throw at God's people, including the kitchen sink. And we should be real and know that, yes, our homes can be taken from us. <laughs> our cars can be taken from us. Our jobs can be taken from us. Um, influence can be taken from you. People can lie on you. Other people can believe it. Um, your very lives even could be surrendered. Ah, but your faith, your choice, the devil can never take that. Don't give him your choice. You keep believing in Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. It won't be too much longer now. We're going to be home. Do you know that Jesus is coming again? You keep holding on to your faith. It is the intent of Satan to try to rattle your faith. But ipsy and e-course, I encourage you in the Lord today, hold on to Jesus Christ through thick and thin, and he will get you home. Amen? My congratulations to the class of 2022, for those of you who have graduated, for the teachers, for the aunties in Spanish, the titis, the tees, the uncles, those of you who helped guardians, the church members who've helped uh, those candidates to graduate in any program, we ask for the Lord to give you special blessing as you were involved in the lives of those graduates and candidates. It is the work of God working through you. Let's turn our hearts now to the word of God in John 1.16, grace upon grace. You know how much I love preaching about grace. And I believe everywhere that I go that it is my responsibility to let you know how much God loves you. That if he had a refrigerator up in heaven, your picture would be on the refrigerator. And that he would be bragging to the angels about you. He would be, he would be talking about how wonderful you are. He would be thinking about you. He would be singing over you. He would want to let everybody know how great a child he has, because that's how much he loves you. My brother, my sister, the word of God says in John 1.16, and of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, speak to me, through me, and for me now in this your platform, and may Jesus Christ be lifted up. Each person who is listening to this message, oh Lord, each person has a different situation that they're going through. Family drama, there might be drama at work, there might be personal problems, legal problems, health problems. 
Lord, everyone's problem is different than the other person, but may no one go home after hearing this message or leave the presence of this message feeling discouraged. Oh, Lord, may that person know that they have been with Jesus. And, Lord, we thank you for hearing this prayer in your grace and answering it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I wanted to start and finish with Mr. Sammy. I don't know if I ever shared with you, Elder, about my dog that we had years ago named Mr. Sammy. Mr. Sammy was half German Shepherd and half Labrador Retriever. He had long, beautiful hair, and we loved that dog so much. Sammy had a mind of his own, and I remember one day my wife Dana and I were sitting down with our daughters in the living room and the French doors to our backyard were open and Mr. Sammy was in the backyard playing when all of a sudden this waft of horrific smell started coming into the living room. It was horrible. And I looked at Dana, Dana looked at me and we looked at the children, the children were doing all right. It wasn't coming from the living room, it was coming from the backyard. And it wasn't just bad, it was horrific. Well, Dana, um, if you've met my wife, she's almost as tall as I am with her strong arms. She scooped up our girls, they were little at the time, all three of them in her arms. In one movement, she picked them up, she carried them out of the living room, started going up the stairs, and then she said to me, with great authority, handle your dog. Well, and then she proceeded to go up the stairs, closing the door behind her as she went upstairs with our girls. I want to share with you that Dana loved Mr. Sammy just as much as I did or anyone else, but whenever she referred to Mr. Sammy as your dog, I knew that one of us was going to get in trouble. Either I was going to get in trouble or Mr. Sammy was going to get in trouble, and it wasn't going to be me. So I proceeded to go outside to investigate, to find out what was going on, and I found out very quickly what happened. Mr. Sammy, my beloved dog, my pup, had found a way to jump the fence, had gone into the neighbor's yard, and being the investigator that he was, had discovered in the trash can of our neighbors a bag, had taken this bag, and had brought the bag, of all things, back into our yard. He made very easy work of the yard of this bag, and I saw quickly what was inside the bag, which was wrapped inside of a bag, which was wrapped up inside of the bag. So within three bags, he discovered the catch of the day, which was catfish innards of several days. He had ripped it open, and this stew of wonder had poured out all over our grass. Not only was it poured out over the grass, but now Mr. Sammy, being the inquisitive pup that he was, decided that he was going to roll himself in this stew. So he laid down and started to roll himself back, back and forth, back and forth. And it was soaked in his skin. And at the time, these um, seeds that had these spikes were in, our, were in season, 
And somehow in the midst of the grass and these spikes, he rolled himself over in his joy and then picked up some of these spikes that were now protruding into his skin. So he was half enjoying what he was doing and suffering at the same time. So he's sitting there rolling back and forth, (laughs) back and forth, crying, enjoying, (laughs) going back and forth. I'm looking at him. And I'm thinking, do we not feed you the best food we can find at Meyer on sale for you to do this to us? And he looked at me like, I can't speak English. <laughs> I knew what I had to do. I got the hose. And I went to work. And we had gotten some cleaner, some dog cleaner, full gallon at Meyer, of course, it was on sale. And I knew that I had to pour the whole thing over Mr. Sammy who was trying to clean himself, but he didn't have fingers. He was not capable of cleaning himself. So he started rolling and rolling, and I just started to wash and pour this over him, and it was stuck in his beautiful black fur, and slowly he started getting clean. Anthony was a rich young man born in Egypt late in the third century. His wealth came from the property he had inherited from his parents when they died before he was 20. Anthony had good health and such a strong body that it was said that he lived to be 106 years old. But his early life was not characterized by his wealth or by his health. You see, Anthony was a spiritual man, often spending time alone meditating with God. And yet for all his meditating, he still felt unworthy and wanted to rid himself of the guilt in his mind. One day, Anthony heard a sermon about the conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler, another rich young man. If you would be perfect, Jesus said, Go and sell what you possess. Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Anthony took the story personally and literally. He sold everything that he had. He left his home, and eventually he went to live as a hermit in the desert, hoping to overcome his guilt by drawing nearer to God. People started talking about Anthony. Then they started going to visit him in the desert just to watch him. Some determined to imitate his lifestyle and joined him in the desert. Many of these followers lived alone as Anthony did, but others lived in groups. Early in the fourth century, one of these groups formed a community in which the members lived together, worked together, had similar dress, regular hours of meditation, and common worship and habits. They called the community a monastery. Soon, other communities called convents were formed for women as well. And by the time of Charlemagne, in the ninth century, the world had competing monastic orders, the Benedictines, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Augustinians. And each group had a different view on how to obtain salvation and how to get through life successfully. These monasteries did tremendous good. In fact, many of these monasteries were credited for copying and preserving scripture. 
Now, it should be said that the monasteries and convents attracted a group of men and women who were drawn to the strictest of lifestyles and to a religious understanding that insisted that too much talk about God's grace tended to make people spiritually lazy. And so they would deny themselves comforts like a warm bed. They would deny themselves food. They would go without eating for weeks. They would go without sleeping for weeks. They would not wash their bodies. They lived with insects and rats. They lived on a column of heat in the desert. They would stay prostrate, belly on the ground, on the desert floor for hours in the sun. These people had come to believe that they were striving to have their names written in the book of life and work their way to salvation. And the highest form of self-denial was celibacy. They would not get married and so deny their flesh and add to their status as extra spiritual. But oh, church family, we should know that this kind of living was devoid of grace. And certainly God is the one who introduced grace. These people were known to be pious and they set a new standard for holiness. When we talk about spiritual formation, when we go on retreat for a weekend to get closer to God, uh uh-uh. They didn't go on a weekend. Their entire lives were on retreat. And it became clear to the average person, in air quotes, that someone like a hermit must be holier than they were because you could never be a super saint. Not because of what Christ had done, but because of what the super saints were doing or not doing. So these men of cloth were then seen as the special forces because it seemed that they had earned the badge, the honor, the right to be called the few, the proud, the super saints. Grace was only mentioned as a side note. How could this have happened? Have you met a super saint? Have you been close to someone who is a super saint who has these kinds of tremendous, it seems like, honors and badges? Well, we need to talk about grace today because the enemy of souls has a plan for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and that's to make the Seventh-day Adventist Church think that you can do it all on your own strength. But I want to introduce to you the work of Jesus Christ. God introduces grace in the Old Testament right from the beginning, right in Genesis. In the first chapter, he could have made Adam and Eve at the very first day of creation and then given them some tools and instruments to build their way through their world. He could have done that. Here are your supplies, God might have said to them, to Adam and Eve at the the beginning of creation. Here's a hammer and a bucket and some nails. What you do with it is up to you. Or he could have made them out in space, put them in space suits with little jetpack and given them instructions to fly to earth all by themselves. But he didn't do that. Instead, he did all the work. Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 says that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Isaiah 41 20 says, so the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created John chapter 1 verse 3 says that without him, nothing was made that has been made. Colossians 1.16 says, all things were created by him. So if we accept the Bible and what it's saying in 1 Corinthians 10.11 that all these things 
were written for our admonition and that Bible stories are to make us wise for salvation, then we have to see the significance of salvation in the creation story. It becomes crucial for us to see and accept that God saves us in the same way that he creates us without our help. Right from the beginning, creation is already redemption. But my brothers, my sisters, God doesn't need our help to save us. And it is the plan of Satan to make us think that we are co-redeemers with Jesus. Uh And that if God is fair, that he should give us a just reward for the work that we have done in getting to heaven. Meaning that someday in heaven with this wrong philosophy, this wrong picture will come up. That we will be on the sea of glass singing praises to our heavenly father praising Jesus for what he has done. And someone with this mindset, I'm imagining, will think, I need to get some payment here because I got here because of my own work. And as the praise symphony goes up higher and higher and higher, would you imagine a voice coming from the back of the choir saying, excuse me, Excuse me, one moment, please. The angels are trying to figure out. It's someone in the back. <clears throat> one moment here, please. Mm-hmm. I need to come down. I need the microphone. And that person coming down from the back of the choir. Is this thing on? And everyone's standing there looking at them dumbfounded like, what's going on? We're, we're praising Jesus. Uh, remember that Jesus did some work, but he only did 95% of the work. Right? And I did the other five, right? He did some of it. I did the other part. He's a just God and I am owed. Even if it's 5%, there's a check coming, right? My brother, my sister, that day will never come. That scene is never going to play out in heaven because something's going to happen somewhere in the middle of that symphony. Someone's going to, I don't know who it's going to be, but it's going to strike someone's mind. Wait a minute, this crown that Jesus hand placed on, on, my, on my brow, how did, how did I get here? How do I deserve this? Someone's going to come to that understanding. This crown needs to be removed and needs to be brought to the feet of Jesus. Someone else is going to see on it and pick right up. You know, you're right. We got here by the grace of God and everyone else will follow in suit. And whatever has been rewarded to us by the grace of God, the work that he did through us, all of that will be removed and we will cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Whatever you're going through today, whatever phase in your life you're wondering how much effort you have to put in to lift, the difficulties that you're going through, the mourning that you're going through, the weeping that you're going through, that our nation is going through, I introduce to you Jesus who is full of grace and truth. Jesus, the master teacher. Jesus, grace personified. Jesus who loves you more, more than you understand. There is no day in your future ever when you will say, ah, Today I completely understand the love of God. That day will not come because Ephesians 3.19 says that to know the love of God means to pass knowledge. So there is no knowledge that will ever come. It will pass his understanding. The Christian doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone hovers over the structure and the content of this creation story. And these five steps, number one, God does all the work. Genesis 1.1 and verse 31. Number two, God gives his work as a gift. Genesis chapter 1, 27 and 30. 
Number three, the recipients of that gift disobey, run away, and try to hide from God in Genesis 3. Step four, God pursues the ones who were running away from him in Genesis 3, 9 through 13. Step five, God promises to take care of the problem caused by separation in Genesis 3, 15. Well, preacher, am I not supposed to do anything? Does God do everything? Many have the idea. I want to share with you a quote uh, from a book that has been very close to my heart. I try to read it at least once every year. I recommend it to you if you already do not have it. Highly recommended book to help you to, to learn more about Jesus. It's written by a woman named um, Ellen G. White, who's a co-founder uh, of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Tremendous writer. And she wrote a book called Steps to Christ. Tremendous book. If you can read this book once a year, it'd be a blessing or more than that. I want to quote from you from page 69, one paragraph, because I find that this really is, is speaking to what we're talking about. This is what she wrote. Many have an idea that they must do some part of the work alone. They have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, but now they seek by their own efforts to live aright. But every such effort must fail. Jesus says, without me, ye can do nothing. Our growth in grace, our joy, our usefulness, all depend upon our union with Christ. It is by communion with him, daily, hourly, by abiding in him, that we are to grow in grace. He is not only the author, but the finisher of our faith. It is Christ first and last and always. He is to be with us, not only at the beginning and end of our journey, but at every step of the way. David says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved in Psalm 16, 8. Are we good enough to be saved on our own? We will never be good enough to be saved. Trying to be good enough means that we can swap places with Jesus or that Jesus owes us something. This has always been the spirit of Antichrist someone who replaces Christ, it is the work of Babylon. And how sad it is, how broken my heart is, that whenever I bring up the word Babylon to my church where I was born in, right now probably what's happening to you is you're thinking Sunday. Right? right. That's what we've been taught, right? We think, well, Babylon, that must be you know, Sunday keeping, instead of thinking that it is working things out on your own and that this is what Satan is doing, and that this is the message to God's people, come out of her, my people, and that it's fallen, as flashy as it is, as gorgeous as it is, as beautiful, as tech-savvy as it is, Babylon Airlines is going down. Don't get on that flight, and if you're on, get off. It's going to crash, fallen, fallen. You cannot believe, you cannot receive that keeping certain hours, not working on Saturday, returning a faithful time, the tithe and offering will get you into the kingdom of heaven. Mm -mm. Come out of her, my people. If we're going to get to the kingdom of heaven, it's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Church history records that there was a Christian leader named Pelagius who taught that sanctification and justification could be mixed together. Somehow that seeped into the Seventh-day Adventist church. Mm Mm-hmm. That it's both that I can do something and also receive what God did. In other words, Jesus did something, but remember, you also have to do something. More than just choose. Jesus did something, 
I do something. And together, that's what's going to get me to heaven. Sanctification, a little bit of sanctification, justification. Uh-huh. That does not come from the Protestant mindset, by the way. Seventh-day Adventists are Protestant. Somebody should say amen. Mm-hmm. The ideology came from this wrong thinking, this wrong theology, right? That we could do something. Thomas Aquinas also believed the same thing, another Christian theologian. Pelagius would do battle with another theologian, Augustine, who believed in grace by faith alone. But Pelagius believed that we should work for salvation. His favorite text was from Matthew 5:48: Be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Right? And if you read this out of context, you will be exhausted trying to be perfect. The context is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is building on the theme of the fulfillment of the law and how to live righteously. Uh, Jesus is laying out his inaugural address in six movements, this beautiful work grounded in the Old Testament and forward-looking like a, a shining light in a starless light. night. The Sermon on the Mount stood in stark contrast to the teachings of the scribes. You see, the rabbis of the day taught that righteousness consisted of having an excess of good deeds over the bad deeds credited to one's account in heaven. Mm. If I've done this much good stuff, the bad stuff, it will outweigh the bad stuff. And based on the good things that I did, that's how Jesus will let me in because that's what I did, right? The Jews were majoring in minors and the scribes themselves couldn't, couldn't follow the minors. And the people were exhausted. They couldn't keep up. So when Jesus said perfect, it was not referring to an unattainable standard. The, work in, in the word in Greek is teleos, which means complete or mature. Be completely and maturely acting in love without limits, especially in reference to who? To your enemies, to the people that don't treat you right, to your haters, to the ones that make you feel uncomfortable, to the outcasts, to the ones that never get invited to anybody's house. Because they're not in the crew or in the posse or in the tribe. The Lord was talking about the Romans and the Greeks. (coughs) This was a radical understanding of how to be righteous. This was let people in that you normally don't let in. This is the context of perfect. Well, pastor, if that's true that we don't do anything, that Jesus did do it all, then then what's all that work for? Right? Right? I thought I was being pretty good to get a reward. You cannot be made good by any work that we do. The matter of being justified is a declaration, an event, not a process that comes from God. God died for sinners. It is true. Well, pastor, I wouldn't characterize myself as dirty. I'm a little bit dirty. Mm. The word of God says in Romans 3 that no human is righteous, which means that we are all in need of a savior. Even if we think that we are rich, as the young ruler thought, our brains have been badly affected by sin. So there's something wrong with this church universal during this time, Laodicean, with the perception of the church who thinks the same thing. We're rich in works. We're rich in actions. We are rich in merit. But the message for the Laodicean church of our time is that we are, in fact, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Our great need is why we should open the door to the Savior who is standing knocking. The solution he offers is himself. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Jesus saves sinners, and he does so by grace. Someone told me one time as I was preaching a message about grace, 
afterward they came up to me and I think they did it out of love. They were trying to kind of bring me in and tutor me. They said, Pastor, that sounds biblical, but I feel uncomfortable when you preach that way. Like you just, you shouldn't say that anyone could be saved. Someone said that to me. Yeah, you shouldn't, you shouldn't just say that. When you, when you say that, it makes it, Pastor, it makes it seem like anyone could be saved. I was like, I think, I think you're getting it, right? right? Based on what Jesus said in John 3, John 6, 37, Jesus said, He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Did you get that? Yeah, but what if they have tattoos? I mean, right? Jesus said in John 6, 37, He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. In the Amplified Version, the one who comes to me, I will most certainly not cast out. I will never, no never, reject one of them who comes to me. Anyone who comes to Jesus can have salvation. Anyone. doesn't matter what they look like, where they come from, whether they're Christian or not Christian. Anyone, Jesus says, he will not cast them away. Don't you think that's worthy to say amen? So if it's true that God's grace has been there for the beginning, um, well, then, well then what do I have to believe? What about my faith? Be careful. This is the other hook, the other dangerous trap. God has rewarded me for being faithful. Hmm? Since I am faithful, he's rewarded me, me for that faith. Hmm. That's another snare. You see, any faith that is not grounded in Jesus is a deception. Someone's listening to this saying, well, what I need to do is, you know, I can mention about 10 pounds of faith. Pastor's saying, I need to get up to about 100 pounds of faith, and then that's it. Just really, really, really believe. This is a deception. It's subtle. It's a trap. I was so faithful. I spent so much time on my knees. I spent so much uh, time wrestling with God. I had so many good thoughts. I got into the Word. I meditated. I fasted. You see the problem? There's too much I and not enough Jesus. So then how could we say it? How do we say it? Well, what do we say? What do you want me to say? Say, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt the name together. His grace and his mercy brought me through. Come on, somebody. I'm living this moment because of you. This is the singing that I listened to. Never would have made it without you. I would have lost it all, but now I see that you were there for me. It's always been about Jesus. Where does this idea come from that there's something that we can do to earn salvation, French professor of Egyptology, Jan Osman, calls it the Osirian doctrine of self-justification, the ancient Egyptian doctrine of how eternal life was granted. This does not come from any Protestant philosophy. It comes from Egyptian philosophy. It is demonic philosophy. It is from Babylon. It is not from the Bible. It, the, the belief goes something like this. The person in the teaching after death would enter a hall where their heart was weighed to see if they were righteous enough. And then they would recite, I have not blasphemed a god. I have not made anyone sick. I have not made anyone weep. I have not killed. I have not taken milk from the mouths of children. I have not driven cattle away from the pasturage. And if it was true, their heart would respond to the truth. If not, then they would not get a reward and they would be punished. 
based on what they did. Does it sound familiar? I have not stolen money from the treasury. I have returned my tithe and offering. I have stopped working on Saturdays. I have not eaten lobster or pork. Only soy products, wholesome vegan foods with other alternatives from Morningstar and Worthington. I have been faithful to my spouse. I have contributed faithfully to the community services department. Mm-hmm. And, I've, and I've only done it for 70 years. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I'm old. Right. You know where I've served, right? Adventurers, Pathfinder, you name it, right on up. Therefore, there's a crown waiting for me in glory. Hmm. It sounds like Egyptian theology. My brothers, my sisters, come out of her, my people. Jesus is the only one who can save us. The Old Testament religious establishments and culture became so powerful that the people were forced in order to appease and please their gods to even sacrifice their own children. This powerful culture of Babylon not only worked then, but it's working now in such a way where people are more interested in things than they are in following God and keeping a relationship with him and keeping his commandments. The Bible is trying to tell us here that these systems through the Egyptians, the Syrians, the the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans all had a system of work. They all wanted to work their way to heaven. But I'm ending with this word from Exodus chapter 6. Play for me. I am the Lord Jesus. God said in Exodus 6. Two, starting in verse 2. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by, by name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving And I have remembered my covenant. God said, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land that I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as possession. (coughs) I am the Lord. This is the message, clear and simple, for today. Mr. Sammy was suffering trying to get himself whole. He wanted to be made whole. He couldn't do it on his own. As I started washing him, God used that moment in my life to remind me how many times have you been like like Mr. Sammy, where you've gone your own way, And maybe you've rolled around in things that you shouldn't have rolled around in. And it's not the first time. And I cleaned you. And I washed you and I made you whole. God wants to do the same thing for us today. The enemy insists on tempting us with things that aren't good for us, that are harmful for us, that hurt us. But Jesus wants to wash you today. 
He wants to wash you clean. Would you let him do that? Since he loves you so much, since he can't stop thinking about you, since he literally decided that he would die, rather die than live without you, literally, and did that, won't you turn to him one more time and accept his grace upon grace? If that's a yes, if you want to answer yes, I just want you to raise your hand as we close with prayer. Heavenly Father, you see the response of your people. We understand and we acknowledge that grace is something that we don't deserve. It's because we have fallen and fallen so often that sometimes we're embarrassed to come to you because we've blown it so many times. How could anyone love us that much that after all of the warnings, after all of the knowledge, after all of the training, knowing better that the thing that we're getting ourselves into is wrong, we still get into it and you still come down to the cesspool to lift us up. What a mighty God that we serve. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us first, for choosing us, that we didn't choose you. It was you who chose us. Your people have raised their hands, Lord. Lord, where we cannot fully understand your grace, Lord, help us to simply accept your grace. It comes from the heart of your Son. And it is in his name that we pray, Lord, receive us, forgive us for our sins. Help us to be more like Jesus because we have received so much grace. Help us also to give grace in return. Receive this prayer now that we pray with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, let all the redeemed say amen.